Our Father, we who know you resonate with those words that we did run a hellbound race. We were indifferent to the cost. We thought we knew the way. We thought we had a wisdom in how we would conduct our lives and things would be fine. Until that marvelous grace appeared in our lives that you revealed to us the foolishness of our ways, the, the guilt that we bore within ourselves because of our sin and our rebellion. And in that recognition, you revealed to us as well Christ, a Savior who stood in our place, who suffered for us, who lived a righteous life for us, who rose for us, and who offers to us by eternal grace forgiveness of sin, hope, reconciliation with God, and a future. And so we praise you for your sovereign grace. We thank you for your tendered mercies that come to us through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask now that to the glory of Christ, which is to your glory, and that you would teach us through your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and open your Bibles back up to the book of Revelation. We come now to part three of what will be a four-part uh, look at these, uh, this little section here of chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Uh, as usual, I intended to do this in one message, but uh, we'll do it in four. But uh, we're establishing some key themes, the things that we'll be returning back as we continue to walk through uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll stay with the same title, even though, where's Angel? Angel, it suggested to me a great title to begin the new year, uh, a new year and a new you. But I couldn't make that fit with this passage, so uh, I think we'll just uh, we'll stick with what we had before. Although it is catchy, I think I'll have to use that in the future. Uh, but this is a new year, and it is appropriate to look again at what God has revealed to us to encourage us in light of living in a fallen world, in light of belonging to a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ that stands in opposition to the kingdom that has a temporary reign and influence over this present world, the kingdom of the Antichrist, one that will know its greatest power and its greater, greatest influence at a time in the future. But the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, and God has warned us about that, and the spirit of Antichrist stands in direct opposition to the truth of the gospel and to the people of God, and therefore it is a kingdom that stands in conflict to our profession of faith in Jesus, who is the Lord of all, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this comes as a, an encouragement, again, to those who are living in that conflict to the church. And to those who will particularly know the intensified reality of that conflict in the final days, what we describe as the tribulation, the final seven years of God's purposes for this present world in which he will unleash his judgment on all of those who stand in opposition to him, and he will bring in his kingdom and establish it on earth. And that's what we anticipate. And so to begin this message of encouragement to the people, God has established for us that the promise is deeply rooted in his own sovereign nature, his own glory, and his own purposes. And so he's giving these four declarations in verses 4 through 8 in his own sovereign power and rule over the nations Four declarations that are given to the church that are for us meant to give us stability of hope and of faith. Uh, the first one was, is in verse 4, that he is giving the declaration that the church, those to whom he's addressing, those who are in Christ, stand in relation to him in grace and peace. In grace and peace. It is those who have received grace and are at peace with him. Peace with this God who is coming in judgment is for his people one who is coming to deliver them from their suffering and to bring in their blessing. It is a de declaration of God's glory in the person and work of Christ, God's triune glory in the Father and the Son and the Spirit, revealed to us in the Father and the Spirit and the Son and the order that he gives it to us in verses 4 through 8. It is the declaration of the guarantee of Christ's return and judgment and salvation. And it is the declaration of the grandeur of God's supremacy overall, which is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, in particular in the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at the third of those this morning. But before we begin, read with me, if you will, uh, out of Revelation 
chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, or read along with me. Or I'll read and you follow. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priest, kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And with this, he is setting the foundation out of which will then come, or from which will then come, a vision that the risen Christ gives to John that will then move into his messages to the church, move into a scene in heaven that's preparing for his unleashing for the judgment of God on a world that stands in opposition to him. Now, we left off last week with that final statement of the glory of Christ, that he is the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is preeminent among all of creation. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who has forgiven us of our sins. He is the one who has established and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, and the one who will receive the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And then John moves into this wonderful promise in verse 7, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And this is a glorious declaration to the church of namely this, that our king is returning. Our king is returning. He is coming. That is what we picture in the Lord's Supper this morning. He is coming to establish on earth the justice and the righteousness, which is the foundation of his kingdom, of his throne, of the throne of God. He is going to do that. He will be here. He will return. Every eye will see him. He will establish his kingdom. Now the first part of this promise, it really comes in two parts. He says, first, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And secondly, that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And so it is to be. Now, you'll notice in that first part, especially, that you might have all caps in your Bible. And for some of you may not be familiar with this, when you see that, it's quoting from the Old Testament. It's saying that this is a quotation taken from the Old Testament. And this verse particularly is drawing on two Old Testament passages. The first, that he's coming in the clouds, is drawing from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And the second is drawing from the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, I think around verses 10 through 14. And so he's pulling here and saying this, this event that is to be the anticipation of the church has been the anticipation of God's people throughout time, even God's people throughout the Old Testament. And here we can anticipate it's coming to be in the return of Christ. Now, due to the significance of each of these books and passages to the context and the content of Revelation, we're going to slow down just a bit here. We're not going to go through all of Revelation this slow, I assure you. But we are going to slow down here because, again, as I said, he's establishing themes. He's he's establishing foundations on which he's going to build. And so we want to just take a bit of time to understand these foundations uh, more thoroughly than just running quickly uh, over them. So as I said, the first of these is taken from Daniel, the book of Daniel, and we're going to be returning to the book of Daniel throughout uh, the book of Revelation. We're even going to take some extended time uh, in the future once we get to the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, And then the second is Zechariah. Uh, So in order to give us a wider context, if uh, we want to set it not only in the context of the book of Daniel, but in the context of the Old Testament at all. So some of I think, hopefully everybody got handouts. Did y'all get those? There should be two handouts, one that is about four pages and one that is just one page that says a general timeline of the Old Testament. Does anybody not have that? Uh, okay, so maybe we could have some uh, uh, ushers or someone come by and, and pass those out. I'm going to reference uh, these uh, a couple of times, and it's a good way to have a visual. They won't be up on the screen uh, for you to have something to look at. uh, You know, a picture is worth a thousand words. 
I'll still try to give thousands of words anyway, as you know, but, but the picture will help along the way. But, so first, and I'm only going to mention this briefly, I'm not going to spend time on it, you'll, you'll have a handout. And it's a general timeline of the Old Testament. I can remember early on in my Christian life, uh, having read large sections of the Old Testament and, and knowing a lot about uh, various facts about the Old Testament, but it, it always seemed to me to be a di- bit disjointed. I didn't really know how it all fit together. And then I took a class in college at the Master's uh, College, and it was an intensive Saturday class, and we just showed up for a certain number of Saturdays and spent hours just going through Old Testament survey. And it was like all of these light bulbs began to go off as this, this scattered information came together in a cohesive whole, and everything all of a sudden seemed to me to make sense. And a key part of that was understanding timeline. Now, some of you who may not be familiar with this, and many of you are, uh, understand that the Old Testament is put together not in chronological order, but the canon that we have, the order of the canon, is by categories. You have the first five books, which are known as the Torah, or the Law of Moses, followed by books of history that give the whole history of the nation of Israel. That's followed by books of poetry and of wisdom, which is then followed by books, the prophetic books, both the major and the minor prophets. And so it's by category. Now you might wonder, as you read through the Old Testament, how does Zechariah fit with 2 Kings, that fits with Malachi, that fits with the Psalms, that fits with Job, that fits with what's going on in the law. And so in order to help clarify some of that, that's what the first handout is. It says a general timeline of the Old Testament. Again, I'm not going to spend time on this. I just want to reference it and want you to take notice of it. That's, That's the framework that all of the Old Testament fits in, or those events. Creation, the call of Abraham, the call of the flood, the call of Abraham, the united monarchy, there's other events, I'm just hitting some of them. The divided monarchy, the exiles, the exiles of the northern tribes by the kingdom of Assyria, the exile of the southern tribe of Judah, and then the return to the land. And that's basically, it's pretty simple, and again, you can throw in other key events, but that's, that's basically the structure of the Old Testament. That's a, that's a key outline, a way to frame all of the events that are going on uh, that we read about, both in the, both in the books of history, poetry, uh, the law, and of the prophets. When we come to the book of Daniel then he fits within this part. He fits in that part, that time in the history of the nation of Israel when they were sent into exile, and particularly the southern tribes, the southern tribes of, uh, the southern tribe of Judah. Assyria, when they broke off, or excuse me, the northern kingdoms, the ten northern kingdoms, when they broke off after the, the, the death of Solomon and the foolish decision of his son Rehoboam, and you had ten tribes that went up north to put Samaria as their capital. They were basically apostate tribes throughout their whole history. God brought judgment on those tribes in 722 B.C. by the nation of Assyria, and that whole division was then wiped out. The, nation, the tribe of Judah hung on a little bit longer, and it was, of course, had its central place of worship, Jerusalem, and God later, because of their disobedience, brought exile to them as well. And he did it through these three particular waves where he used the the nation of Babylon and the king Nebuchadnezzar, which you're familiar with. These three waves happened around 605 B.C., around 597 B.C., and then finally the one that we're most familiar with was the destruction of Jerusalem around 586 or 587 B.C., Daniel fits within that first wave of exile in which Nebuchadnezzar swept in and removed the, basically the, the honored of the land, the wealthy, the aristocrats, those kind of people from the land. And so Daniel's life, as we come to the book of Daniel, which is, uh, which is where we get that promise, he's coming in the clouds. So this is to set the context. Daniel's life then spans the first wave of the exile to its completion about 70 years later. So his life spans that first coming of Nebuchadnezzar to take away exiles into the land of Babylon, the destruction of the temple, the whole reign of the kingdom of Babylon, and into the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And so he covers all of that, and then he dies uh, just before their entrance back into the land. Now, because of the prophetic clarity and specificity of the book of Daniel, some of liberal scholarship want to date the book around the 2nd century, some even later than that. 
Because in the book of Daniel, God gives us very specific information about world history and his plans for his people and how those two things fit together. And standing over above all of that is the sovereign purposes of God. However, by those who do not reject the idea of inspiration, the dating of Daniel is probably around 530 A.D. So it was written about 530 A.D., And the purpose of Daniel, as I noted, is to do this. And this fits into our connection with Revelation. And I hope this is worthy to take the time to to understand the the context and the, the fullness of God's promise of hope given to his people and to us. The purpose of Daniel and the reason it has such prophetic clarity and the reason God gave it to his people is to encourage them who were going to be in exile because of their sin and to encourage them by reminding them that God is in sovereign control over the nations. Nations will rise. God will use these nations as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purposes. Nations will also fall. And then another nation will rise. It will accomplish God's purpose. And then it will fall. And another nation will rise. But over it all, God stands in absolute control. He has not rejected his people. And you can imagine how important that was for them to know, particularly as those who went into exile and Daniel a little bit later after his exile would look back at their homeland, the covenant land, the promised land, the land that God brought them into, the land that God blessed them with, the land that was in in Strictly bound to his promises to them, the land that housed the temple, Solomon's great and glorious and mighty temple, the place that was the very center of the symbol of God's presence among his people on the earth, the place where they went to worship him, they would look back on that and they'd see it in ruins, destroyed in the most graphic and extreme way. They deceived the people of God that were the recipients of his promise removed from their homeland, removed from the place of blessing into a foreign land. And it was particularly humiliating because that was particularly in that world and in that context seen as the God of these other nations was stronger than the God of Jerusalem. The God who claimed to be the creator of all things and the ruler of all things was the recipient and his people were of the taunts of these pagan nations. Saying our God is stronger clearly because he has overcome your God. Your God was not able to protect you. And so the message of God to his people through his prophets is God is on the throne. He has not forgotten his people. He is the one ruling over these nations. One summed it up this way. The basic theme of this work, speaking of Daniel, is the overwhelming sovereignty of the one true God who condemns and destroys the rebellious world power and faithfully delivers his covenant people according to their steadfast faith in him. One says it a bit more uh, succinctly. The The theme is this. The absolute sovereignty and transcendence of God above all angels and men literally permeates the book. Now you can see why understanding this context would be a particular encouragement to those who are receiving the message of God through John in Revelation that one is coming in the clouds. They stand in a situation in the church in various places throughout its history and certainly those who will come to know God in the time of the tribulation will know what it means to be under the rule of an evil kingdom. They were not so different than those to whom God was writing through the prophet Daniel in this case. Now God reveals then his sovereignty over the nations. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel at all, you know that he does this first through a dream that he gives to a pagan king. A pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. A dream that God gives to Daniel an interpretation and then later gives to Daniel other visions that will fill out the initial dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. The first and foremost of these is the dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar of a great and mysterious statue. Now, actually, if you look at your handout, uh, that is a helpful summarization of some of the different elements of this dream and its connection to what we'll spend most of our time on uh, in just a few moments. 
This is the dream of the golden statue. This is the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built to his own fame, to his own name, to his own glory. This is the statue that he was influenced to require worship of all of those in his kingdom. And, of course, we know that famous story of, uh, well, at least the names that were given to them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bow the knee to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he threw them into the furnace. And it was there, one like an angel, one like a one divine being was with them there, protected them and they walked out of that furnace unscathed, completely untouched by the flames, and Nebuchadnezzar realized that their God was the greater God. And one of the many ways that he's continually bearing testimony to his name. Well, it was that statue that they wouldn't bow down to, but it was the statue that was meant to be a prophetic gift of God to Nebuchadnezzar, but primarily to his people declaring what the future would hold. Now, this statue is identified for us primarily in Daniel chapter 2. And again, I'm only going to mention this briefly because I want to get quickly to the context of Revelation chapter 1-4 and Daniel 7. The head of this great statue, as you can see on your handout, is a head of gold, of fine gold. It is a picture of Babylon and the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. The silver on this statue of chest and arms is the Medo-Persia Empire. It is the great world power that would come in after Babylon, defeat Babylon, and then come in after Babylon. It has a bronze belly, this statue did, and thighs. And that was a picture of Greece, the kingdom that would then come after the Medo-Persian Empire and sweep across much of the ancient world. And it was followed by another part of the statue that had legs of iron and feet that were mixed with iron and clay to show both strength and instability, a loose kind of connection and cohesiveness among its different parts. And he gives this great picture, and he says to Nebuchadnezzar that you are the the king to whom the God of heaven, he says in verse 37, has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory. You are, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar would have been little concerned about the kingdoms that were to follow, for he knew that in his time and in his reign, he was going to be one exalted and have authority and power in his kingdom. And yet, after giving the picture of these kingdoms, he then mentions a fifth kingdom that is to come after these in verse 44. And he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. And here's the key, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. It's a kingdom described not as a part of the statue, but something outside of these kingdoms of the earth, something supernatural, some originating solely from the presence of God. And he says, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now flip on over to Daniel chapter 7. Because now Daniel is going to take, and if you looked at the last part of that handout, you'll see this comparison. It's a little chart on the side. It has the, the elements, the nations of the statue of gold, and then it has the beast. Daniel chapter 7 is swinging back around, God is, to describe these kingdoms again, but with even more detail and then adding a new detail, which is anticipating a kingdom yet future still to us. In Daniel chapter 7, he gives the picture of these four kingdoms that are going to rise, and he does so with the imagery of four beasts, four beasts, four beasts that are going to rise up out of the sea, out of the mass of humanity, and rule for a period of time to accomplish God's purposes. He says that actually in verse 17. These great beasts of Daniel chapter 7 are four number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. He's telling him things that are going to happen in the future. And I just note here before beginning is this is the prophetic description of these kingdoms and it is the divine insight of God's evaluation of these kingdoms. If you and I were to be going a time machine and be transported back to the nation and the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the height of its glory, 
and to walk through its crown city, we would see beautiful and great and marvelous things. If we were to go out to the land as far as we could go, we would see a people subservient to the king and to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar in this great empire. We would see things that would be very impressive to us as men. We'd see power and we'd see strength. We'd see a kind of glory and yet God looks at it and he sees a beast, an animal. He's looking at the nature of it. It's a prophetic way to emphasize God's evaluation of these kingdoms. Great and mighty in the sight of men, accursed by God and ready for judgment because they do not honor him. What is the way? What are these beasts that he describes? And again, I'm going to do this just very quickly, but to set the context. As we already noted in verse 17, these are kings who will arise from the earth and rule over kingdoms that will play a significant God-ordained role in the life of the world, but more particularly in the life of his covenant people. It's telling them, look, the the winds of history are going to change, the winds of power are going to fluctuate, but God has a singular purpose that he is accomplishing in all of this for his people. And so what then are these four beasts that correspond to the four parts of the statue? The first he mentions in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 7. He says, the first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man and a human mind was given to it. This represents the nation of Babylon, the nation of Babylon. That is, a lion speaks of its fierceness, of its power, and of the strength that will mark this kingdom. That it has wings of an eagle speaks of its swiftness, its quickness in war and battle, its ability to move armies and people at a rapid pace. That its wings were plucked and the mind of man was given to it speaks most likely... Most likely, this speaks to the incident in Nebuchadnezzar's life. If you'll remember in chapter 3 where he declared his might and his glory because of this kingdom that he had established and God humbles him, makes him to walk on the ground like a beast. His hair grew long, his nails grew long. Eventually, he was just kind of left out in the field to get wet and live like the animal that he was acting like and thinking like. God eventually restores him back to his former glory and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the might and the supremacy of the God of Daniel, the God of Israel. Most likely it's a reference to that. The second beast that is described is that of a bear. This is the Medo-Persia empire. He says in verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. What's going on there? Well, again, the bear is in, is in all of these animals, speaks of a kingdom that will have great strength. But this also brings in an added characteristic of destructiveness and fierceness that will mark its military quest and its rule. That it's raised up on one side is a reference to the superior power of the Persian Empire over the Median Empire. So these are two empires that had joined, but Persia had the greater power. And if you remember just as a footnote, it was the Persian Empire, that, that, that supreme rule of the Persian aspect of it, that God raised up the king that would deliver his people back into the land. Again, showing that it was King Cyrus showing that God was in control of these things. He's raised up on one side, shows the superior power of the, of the kingdom of Persia. The three ribs in its teeth is most likely a picture of her three greatest conquests. And I won't list those, but there are three specific conquests. And he says there in these conquests, it says that he hears this word, uh, arise, uh, devour much meat. It's not clear on who they is, and it says they said. But the message of those who are speaking is clearly this. Continue to devour, continue to feed upon all of those you conquer. Exercise a strong rule. Give Give no stay of the hand of your march towards absolute dominance is the idea. And then we have a third kingdom. This is the kingdom of Greece. And he's described as a leopard in verse 6. After this I kept looking, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. This is a description of the great conquest of Alexander the Great. 
under his leadership, and he's known for the, the, the quickness with which he moved across the land of the ancient Near East, and he spread his kingdom. He had a seemingly unstoppable army, and it was under his rule that the kingdom knew its greatest strength. He spread the influence of both the culture and the political borders of Greece across a vast empire. That's sometimes, as you might hear that word, what we refer to as Hellenization. It's where the Greek language and the Greek culture was impressed upon all of these conquered nations. It was a glorious kingdom. He was an amazing ruler. And this is what he speaks of here with the four wings on his back. You notice also that he says the beast had four heads. This refers to the four divisions of the kingdom after Alexander's death. After he died, he established four or four generals were established over four major areas of his reign. The first by the name of Cassander, who was over Greece and Macedonia. Another was Lysimachus, which was over Thrace and large parts of Asia Minor. And then two significant ones, most that were common to us, is Seleucus, which was largely over Syria, and Ptolemy, who was over Egypt. He mentions these over in chapter 8, again in chapter 7, and in chapter 8. He mentions Greece, particularly in chapter 8, who he's going to focus on, and we'll get to that at another time, in the imagery of a ram and a goat, changing the imagery. But here it is, he says, a dominion was given to it. This is the dominion given to it by God. And note the passive verb there, one that we'll encounter again and again in Revelation. And the idea here is this, the, the point being made here is this, that this kingdom, vast, mighty, quick, powerful, unstoppable, was given this authority not because it had it inherent within itself, but because God had given it, he's accomplishing something. This is the authority that God gave it. God gave the authority to Babylon to wreak wreak discipline on his people and to destroy Jerusalem. God gave authority to Persian Empire to bring his people back into the land. God gave authority to Greece to conquer all the nations that stood in front of it. God is the one doing this. Kings rise and kings fall by his power. However, most significant, the fourth beast then takes on a dimension of its own. And this is described in verse 7. And then I, after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boast. Here is a kingdom that stands out from the others in its terrifying nature. He says it's dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And he drops the simile here of animals. Not, it's not like a lion or like a leopard. It is simply a beast that defies any kind of comparison with any known animal to us. It is marked by the fact that it devours and it crushes all that is in its way in the most ruthless kind of way. However, the most significant part of this that will draw Daniel's attention is this little horn that rose up and it pulled out others by its roots. He describes this in verse 24 of chapter 7 as, For the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. Marked again by his arrogance in verse 25, he'll speak out against the Most High. He'll wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Note three and a half years. So this is one who's going to come, who's going to be marked by a particular antipathy towards the people of God and a particular hatred of God and his people. And it's going to rise up out of this fourth kingdom that is described as a beast and is most likely to be associated with both the historical Rome and the revived Roman Empire that will come later. And we'll spend more time on that in the future. But I want you to notice here is that at the end of this great and this terrible and this, this mysterious and this fearful description of a king with power, with arrogance, with the ability to cause harm to God's people, with the heart to hate God, is then 
matched up with this great contrast in verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. You see, you could not make a stronger contrast here. One is noted this is one of the strongest contrasts probably in all of Scripture. You have the reign and the rule of these terrible kingdoms. And then you have this overwhelmingly terrifying picture of a beast. And immediately, immediately, without hesitation, with no transition, with no introduction, we have the picture of a throne. And this is God's prophetic way of giving insight behind the reality of these kingdoms, the reality of what's going on. Men observe the world stage, but Scripture gives us the insight behind that to say, this is what you see, but this is what God is doing. And this is who He is. is a picture of His presence and of His power. And He says here that thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took a seat. These thrones are where the real authority of God and the real purposes of God are being executed. It's not the thrones on earth that have ultimate power or significance, but those thrones in heaven, and particularly him who took his seat, the Ancient of Days, who stands above it all. The kingdoms, again, of the earth are mighty in the sight of men, but mere instruments in the hand of God. They're instruments. When God is done with them, he discards them. The Ancient of Days represents his eternality. Similar to what Moses said in Psalm 90, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It speaks as well probably of his wisdom, that he is the one who is. He is the one who outlasts and is above all of these nations. He is the ancient of days. He is the one with authority. He's described later as vestures. His vesture was white like snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. This is a description of the Father. What we would understand with New Testament and clearer revelation of the nature of God as God the Father. And the imagery and the description of Him is an imagery that is meant to communicate this. Purity, absolute holiness and majesty and power and one who is ready to execute judgment. This is an awesome picture. If you took all of the ability of Hollywood and computer graphics together and made the most magnificent project that they could come up with, it would be a joke in light of the reality of this. This is overwhelming. We can watch whatever Hollywood can produce and go out and get a hamburger afterwards. To see this would make you fall down like a dead man, frozen in fear. And so this is the majesty of God. This is the majesty of God. He says a river was flowing and coming out from before him. The imagery of fire in Scripture is that of holy judgment. Holiness that devours all that stands in opposition to it. Holiness that devours sin. Holiness that devours unbelief. Holiness that devours rebellion. It is fire. God is a consuming fire. And in this vision, thousands and thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads, which is simply to say this, an overwhelming number beyond counting. These are angelic beings, each of those attending, each of these beings in and of themselves, able to be used by God to destroy any one of those nations. We see examples of that in the Old Testament. And here there's thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads attending Him who sits on the throne. Who took his seat, him who took his seat. And then he notes that the court was sat and the books were open. This is a scene of judgment. This is where God the judge stands over the nations and who will hold them to account. So before men they are powerful, they are feared. Before God they are accused and accountable. Before men they seem to have all the strength. Before God they are simply those who are to be judged. Now, within this, take special note. And again, I know we're just skipping over this like a rock on the surface of water. But let's just take note of a couple of things. The court sat, the books were opened, and then I began looking because of the sound of the boastful words. And you'll notice again, he zeroes in on this, this little horn, this particular horn who rises up out of insignificance, but that continues to grow and manifest itself as one who stands in distinct opposition to God. And he's speaking boastful words, he says, which the horde was speaking, he took notice of. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So all of these boastful words then are brought to naught. 
this one, this ruler, is going to be brought to an immediate end. An immediate end. And notice what he says. This will be slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning fire. And this stands in contrast to the other kingdoms. To the other kingdoms, he says, they'll come to a demise. They'll come to an end. But look at what he says in verse Uh, the end of verse 12. He says, But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And most likely this refers to the fact that though their specific rule will end, their influence and the people themselves will continue on in the other nations. In other words, they won't come to a complete end. Greece will be conquered, but the Grecian people will still be. Grecian culture, culture and so forth will still exist and even have an influence on the conquering nation. One said this, Neo-Babylonia, Medo-Persia, and Greece were not totally destroyed when they lost their dominion, but were largely merged into succeeding empires. Totally different will be the fate of the fourth kingdom because it will be destroyed immediately and decisively and given to the most enduring punishment. Now we can read this and immediately conjure up the imagery that's given to us in Revelation in which at the return of Christ, the mounted rebellion against him by the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And he says this at the return of Christ in verse Revelation 19.20. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, and those were, these were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword. And so forth. He's anticipating here a judgment that will later be revealed to us, a judgment that is decisive and attached with the coming of the one who will be mentioned next. And so let's consider that. When will this happen? When will this judgment take place? Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Do you see Revelation 7? This is what he's talking about. A time that is future to those who are the original hearers of Daniel. A time that is future to the first century Christians. A time that is future to us. I kept looking in the night, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He's described here then, this one who is to come, is like a son of man. Now this phrase is used at other times in Scripture, most commonly Daniel or Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel is referred to as the son of man. There's a few other places in the Old Testament. And the idea is merely in that phrase to emphasize the, the unity with humanity, the humanness of the individual. That he is a part of the human race, the humanity. And therefore, some have understood this phrase, Son of Man, to refer either to an angelic being. Some even suggest Gabriel. Others want to suggest the Jews, the people of God. Now, there are a variety of reasons to reject those views, which are done by most. But the clearest of which is that this phrase is uniquely taken up by Christ himself and identified with the Messiah when he appeared on earth. Let me give you just one text, and we'll... Swing back around to this. But in Mark chapter 14, drawing directly from this imagery, in verse 61, Jesus said this. He said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When he was being questioned by the Jewish leaders about his identity. Moreover, this is nearly not merely a man in contrast to the prophet Ezekiel and the other uses of this phrase. This is one who holds not merely a title that identifies him with humanity, but a position of authority and shared glory that identifies him with deity. And that's the mystery and the wonder that would have filled the minds and the hearts of the early readers and indeed us as well. Where do we get that? Behold, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a clear imagery of divine glory. Clouds represent God's presence. 
God's glory. If you'll remember, it was a cloud that represented God's presence as he led his people out of the nation of Israel, as he led them through the sea, and as he led them for 40 years in the wilderness wanderings before he brought them into the promised land. The cloud represented God's presence. When God established his presence among his people first in the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, it was a cloud that filled it. Such was the presence of God and his holiness that not even Moses could enter in to that tabernacle. If you remember, it was a cloud that filled the temple at that glorious building and structure of Solomon. And when they dedicated the temple to God in 1 Kings chapter 8, it was the glory of God in the form of a cloud that filled it so that nobody could go near or could go in it. It was the presence and the glory of God. And here, this one like the Son of Man not only is not excluded from it, but he is identified with the very glory and the nature of this cloud as he comes and is presented with the Ancient of Days. This is a picture of relationship and mission. The Ancient of Days is the one seated on the throne. He is the one who then gives to this Son of Man presented to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nation and language might serve him might serve him, might serve him, I would note, as they would serve God. It's his kingdom that is eternal. It is a kingdom and a rule that he exercises in conformity, in conjunction with, in unity with the ancient of days and the one who sits on the throne. It is a kingdom that, unlike the other kingdoms, will not pass away and will not be destroyed. And that's what makes it unique. There's similar language that God used. I alluded to it earlier in Daniel chapter 2 to the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he said, You, O king, are a king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. He said that to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. to describe the glory of his kingdom. But what is distinct here is this, and significant, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is described as a beast that would be destroyed. The kingdom of the Son of Man is given as an extension of the holiness of God and as is eternal. It is a kingdom that will reign over men on earth, but it is a kingdom that marked by the very nature of God. It is one that will not be taken away. It is not temporary. It is not destroyed. It is not temporary in nature to fulfill a temporary purpose of God, but it is the purpose of God. It is the very goal of God. It is the one that is the stone cut out of the mountain that destroys all of the other kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. This is the kingdom of the Son of Man and the kingdom that is coming. It is a kingdom that is both physical and earthly as well as spiritual. Physical and earthly and that it is an actual reign of this king, an actual reign of this Son of Man on earth over a people, a dominion that rules on this earth even as the others did, but he rules over them and destroys them. And yet it is spiritual because it is marked by righteousness. And those who worship God in truth. One summarized it this way. I thought it was a good summary. Sorry, I don't have it up on the screen, so you'll just have to listen. But Christ reigns in the heart of believers in a spiritual sense today. But this passage describes the bestowing of a physical kingdom through which he will someday rule the earth. All of the other kingdoms described in this chapter are real earthly empires. And it is best to see this kingdom as a real and earthly as well. Though his rule on earth will last 1,000 years... Christ's sovereignty will not end after the millennium, but will continue throughout eternity. In other words, this isn't a spiritual kingdom that he's talking about. He's not talking about a spiritual kind of rule where God really has the power, but he's not fully exercising it on earth. No, he's saying this is a kingdom given to the Son of Man that will come, that will destroy earthly kingdoms, and in their place where they used to rule, he will rule in their stead as the true king. That's what he's saying. It's a kingdom that will not be destroyed, that is unthreatened by the kingdoms of men. And so the promise was a reminder and encouragement to Israel of God's sovereign purposes and rule over the nations. Though they were in exile, though it seemed that the kingdom, the pagan kingdoms had this ultimate power, they did not. God was the one who stood in place. 
of ultimate king and ruler of the nations. And his rule would be specifically associated with the coming of the Messiah. And this was understood to be exactly that by the Jews. They knew this was a messianic passage. They knew they were anticipating the Son of Man. They knew that they were waiting for this kingdom that was to come. You can look back at Revelation. So when he writes there and he says... This dominion will be forever and ever. This one who is coming that now is revealed as Jesus Christ, the Son of God in flesh, the one who accomplished redemption, firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings. He is the one who has a kingdom. He is the one who has made a people priest to his God and Father. He is the one to whom belongs glory and power and dominion. And just as Daniel said, he is the one who is coming in the clouds. To claim that kingdom and to establish that kingdom. Jesus again made this abundantly clear when he told his disciples of the things that were to come at the end of the age. He referenced this very promise as he told them of the destruction that was to come, the rise of the abomination of desolation, the earthquakes and the things that would be associated with the judgment of God. He then tells about the glorious coming of himself. In his exalted state as king, he says in verse 29 in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, stars will fall from the sky. And he says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the man, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's coming. And everyone will see it and it will be a glory that will overwhelm and consume everything else. It's the glory of the returning king, the one who had received the kingdom and was now coming to take possession of it on earth. But this would have been hard for them to understand. This would have been confusing. And certainly, looking merely through the eyes of men, this would seem to be Not true, wouldn't it? Consider this. When did Jesus next say this statement? He next identified himself, not only when he was teaching the apostles, but when he was standing before the Jewish leaders. Now remember, in their head, they would have had, because of the way that they developed this, in their mind, that our Messiah is exclusively the one who will come in that power and dominion and overthrow every other political power, every other beastly kingdom, every other pagan kingdom that does not honor and worship God. And our Messiah is going to come, and he's going to overthrow it. We've already mentioned this. And then he comes into Jerusalem. He comes on the shouts of his people. He comes performing miracles. He comes confronting the leadership. He comes declaring the apostasy of his own nation and calling them to repentance. He comes telling them parables about a kingdom that uh, was taken away from the people for whom it was attended and given to another. And now here is this one who is identified as the Son of Man and he's standing bound by the leadership, betrayed by one of his own. And so imagine the scene when we have the glory of Daniel chapter 7 and here we have the scene of Christ before the rulers and those of the nation of Israel, both the covenant people and the pagan nations. And it says they kept, they brought him, they had already come and taken him from the betrayal of Judas, taking him away in the night, scuttered him off to a place where they were giving him a false trial. And they were trying to obtain testimony against him in Matthew twenty six fifty nine, And it says they did not find any, even though there were many false witnesses. Until one came and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And they said, do you not answer? They said this to Christ. What is it that these men are testifying? And Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what was Jesus' response? Bound before them, seemingly weak in their eyes, he said this, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. 
And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've heard this blasphemy. He deserves death. They spat in his face. They beat him with their fist. And others slapped him. And others mocked him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? How different it looks to men than it looks to God. Here was the Son of Man, the one with power and glory and dominion, who was standing before them giving himself to be beaten and broken and mocked and killed. But this is the same one that Revelation reminds us is who he said he would be, and he is going to do what he said he would do, and he is coming with the clouds. The leaders rejected it. The political powers of the world rejected it. The rulers of men But it's true, vindicated not only in his death, but in his resurrection. He's coming with the clouds. And you can imagine how different it looks to the people of the God now and the rise of evil, suffering, supposedly subject to the authority of men. And yet our declaration as a church is what? No, it looks like that now. But we serve the one who's coming on the clouds in power and glory and majesty in the presence of the Father, in all the divine glory that is due Him to exercise His rule and His kingdom. Is the person of the Son of God in His glorified humanity, not Him who was broken before the eyes of men, Him who rose from the grave and appeared to the disciples, Him who was with them for 40 days, Him who ascended back in a cloud to the right hand of the Father. You remember the disciples. He went up in the cloud. He says, you're going to see him return in the same way that you saw him leave. So it's a passage here when he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, is meant to encourage the people of God that right now you look like you're suffering or you will suffer. Right now it looks like there's no hope. Right now it looks like there's a rise to evil that will not be broken. But he says, remember, God is the one who stands sovereign. There is a king and he's coming and he's coming in glory. And when he comes... He will, in holy justice, consume and devour and destroy all that stands in opposition to Him. And so come, to come with the clouds is a matter of fear for those outside of Christ, but to hear those words by the people of God, it is for that, it strengthens our long-awaited hope and joy in, in our King who's returning. So it was a picture then of God's presence, promised presence among His people, a manifestation of His holiness. His covenant faithfulness. Listen to this as we come into the table. This is a bit of an extended quote. It might be up there, Mike, if you were able to get it. But I thought this has captured it so well that I would use these words. He says, For the first disciples, the lesson that Jesus was the Son of Man focused upon the humanity of Jesus. They had to learn that salvation does not come through the advent of a triumphal heavenly figure bearing a sword, blasting his opponents with fire from heaven. Rather... It comes through the advent of a baby in a manger who grew up to bear a crown of thorns and carry a cross. The Son of Man had come not to be served as one might have expected from Daniel, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. However, the hearers of the book of Revelation, for the hearers of the book of Revelation, the lesson of the Son of Man was reversed. They were in the situation of Daniel's hearers suffering intense persecution for their faith and so needed to be reminded of the central lesson of Daniel 7. The return of the Lord will not be the same as his first advent. Christ is not eternally suffering upon the cross, but when the time is ripe, he will return as the Son of Man in glory on the clouds bearing a sharp sickle to bring final judgment on his enemies. Or, said more concisely by Hebrews chapter 9, So Christ, having offered once to bear the sins, been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And that's the hope. Behold, he's coming in the clouds, and when he comes, he will set all things right for his people. And that's what we reflect when we take the Lord's table. We proclaim his death until he comes. And so when we take this, we together as an expression of faith are declaring our Lord is returning, our King is returning, 
And until he does, we will trust him and serve him. So let me pray, and then we'll have the men hand out the elements, and we'll remember the table together. Father, thank you for this great promise. And Lord, this is the history of your people. This is the history of those who've come to know you, who you have given and granted to experience your grace, to know your promises. Help us to see this, O Lord, that you are coming in the clouds with glory, the glory of the Son of Man, the glory of our God, the glory of the true King, the glory of a kingdom, and you will establish righteousness and justice with all the confusion of men. There will be no confusion when you appear. Everything will be seen exactly as it is, truly even as you give us that insight through Daniel and that promise and that hope in your word. So as we take these elements and press upon our hearts these truths, your glory, what it means to be a citizen of heaven, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.